and welcome to this, the third Cap Gemini training podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about learning needs analysis. I'm Clive Barber. I'm going to be joined by my colleagues, Mandy Lenheim, Paul Duggins and Mark Alden. We're all part of Cap Gemini's BTC, Business Transformation Consulting Practice. Oh, we're going to have this argument again. Training needs analysis, learning needs analysis. What are we going to call them? Why don't we just call it a needs analysis? Oh, that's an interesting idea, I suppose. But a needs analysis could be um, for many things, couldn't it? Business analysts do needs analyses. Well, shouldn't we, did, shouldn't we discuss learning versus training as part of the call? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. And the outcome of the actual thing we're discussing. Well, what is the difference then? Let's discuss it now. About five letters. <laughs> <laughs> so, Podcast gold. <laughs> so, so for me, um, I mean, training is, is when you are pushing, it's push and pull, isn't it? So training is more about somebody pushing something to somebody, something to somebody else, not necessarily at the exact moment in time when they want it or need it. That's training, isn't it, for me? As one, you could say that. Whereas learning is you consuming something because you want to consume it and you're doing it wet more times than not you're doing it when you need it or ideally so learning is you pulling them the information and training is somebody else pushing it down to you from on high normally yeah and and kind of to further define that i think it's more a case of that this old thing about training is somebody standing up at the front of a room lecturing whereas learning is what actually happens inside somebody's head that turns it into usable knowledge and usable skills when it goes back to the classroom. I think that's why it's important to, to have a, a difference. So what is a learning needs analysis then? Anybody got a good short definition? So I've, whenever I've been asked this question by a client, the one, what I've always said is something along the lines of, it's a piece of work, the, the output of which is to determine who needs training, in what, when, how they're gonna get it, and where we're gonna deliver it effectively. So it's the how, the who, what, the why, the where, and the when. Isn't it the gap as well into what they yeah. know now? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, yes, they, that's oversimplifying it. But essentially, it's the detail of like who's going to get what and when they're going to get it and why they're getting it and the rest of it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a step before then, really, because it's, it's, it's also about, it's about identifying the knowledge, the skills, and the attitude that individuals need. But I think that the other important point is it's it's those that the knowledge, skills and attitudes that the individuals need to meet their own and their organisations aims and objectives. Even if you're doing a project work, you still need to focus on things like, you know, the priorities. What are the most important points that people need to walk away from uh, training intervention with? And that needs to be an organisation's goals. Yeah, because it, it should absolutely back into the strategy as well, shouldn't it? Because obviously that was what we were talking about previously. And again, we obviously talked about goals there, but it's, it's, it's if anything, it's just more of a granular version of what we've previously talked about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if nothing else, it's going to give you that, you know, of, of the 200 learning points that we have, which are the priority ones, which ones, if we do have a limitation of budget or time, which ones are the priority, which ones can we not possibly miss? That type of thing. Why is it important to do a learning needs analysis? I would say because I think the, 
if you don't, there's an inherent risk involved um, because you're going to create something that's based on assumptions and those assumptions may not be correct. So if you don't do the analysis and you don't ask the right questions of the right people and then try and work with stakeholders and understand what the budget constraints are, what the operational constraints are and all the other factors that sort of are at play, then you might propose something that's so blue sky, so expensive or it's just... It, so the risk is that it's, it, it just may not ever work or ever get done. So the, for me, it's about risk. It's about understanding what the what the, the skills gap is and coming up with a realistic workable solution to meet that. Perfect. Thank you. When and how do you actually conduct a learning needs analysis? I think it's once the solution is has been designed and we know what the solution is, if you're going through it in the stages of a project. So after the strategy, then is that a question? Is that a, people do, I've had people t tell me they need, they do needs analysis is before a strategy. Well, that's bananas. Oh, no, I know. Yeah, no, it is wrong. I mean, the fact is you could, your, your learning needs analysis could impact your strategy. So you could revise your strategy based on the fact that you've actually got more information. But generally, uh, I mean, it, it, I suppose it could work, but I think it's the way we operate is that we will have to give a heart, we'll have to do a strategy based on relatively limited information to go into the bid and the, into the sales process. But I think generally, you get you then get your TNA, which is is which covers the complete level of detail that you want. I think you have to be in a position where. You know, if we say the piece of work is, a, is some sort of a project or a program, it has to be far enough along so that it's worked out what the end game is. Because if you don't know what the end game is, what the goals are, what the program is trying to achieve, be that process, soft skills, technology, whatever, then how can you compare and contrast that against what happens now? So you can't compare and contrast the as-is and the to-b to come up with the gap that needs reducing through tra through a train a program of training if you don't know what the bloody 2b is <laughs> sorry if you don't know <laughs> you don't know what the 2b is so so the problem i guess is you need you need at least to have an understanding of what the client or what the program is trying to achieve before you can set out on this because yeah. otherwise you know there has to be some goal posts doesn't there so indeed so what, what type of activities do you do or what, what sort of tools do you use to actually conduct the TNA? And, and now I'm thinking about, obviously, interviews with, with stakeholders, workshops, direct observation of, of the various roles and individuals involved. What other sorts of things should we be doing? Well, we um, need to include the, the functional guys again, don't we? Yeah. It may be something that we've done previously, so we have an understanding of how complex particular processes or the different processes across the entire piece are. But it, but particularly if you, if you don't, then you have to have them feed into that to say, this is a really straightforward process. Don't know if one's a particularly complicated process, et cetera. So again, either using your own experience or the experience of your colleagues to get the um, the right information in there. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think to add to that as well, there's a couple of things that I, I think I thought about and that's one of, one of them is that um, in terms of a tool that I use to do a, a needs analysis and that's I, I always have a sort of a, a toolkit of questions you know that we, we've honed over a, 
however long and we they, they get adapted for each particular client as it were it's a good way of, of of sort of adding structure to those workshops or sessions meetings whatever you call them where you know you're talking to key stakeholders whether they be business or functional whatever so that that's the one thing um the other thing is um <laughs> it's just gone completely out of my head oh no no, no. sorry i i remember <laughs> so the other thing that what it's a, it's a nice to have is is um if our colleagues our esteemed colleagues in change management are also on the program an impact analysis is also a very helpful thing to have in place because yeah. that yeah there's a lot of overlap between the two and that can be very helpful yeah, I found the change impact assessment being really helpful, actually, especially on the recent S4 HANA project. That kind of set, you know, was the ground, the grounding for working out what was needed and what was to, you know, and having access to the workshops that do the impact analysis as well really gave me a head start to try and complete as much of what the 2B looks like. You've also got things, if, you, if you're talking about creating a set of, of questions that you go armed with, to each TNA, then that naturally leads to, you know, sending out questionnaires, either doing it by email or using tools like SurveyMonkey is one I've used in the past, that type of thing, to get to geographically dispersed uh, audiences. Do you know, I've never used a questionnaire. I've never done a TNA like that. I don't know why. And I've done some pretty big projects as well. Well, I think it. it this is the thing, because you you need to speak to enough people to be sure that you've got the right answer but if you do if you do go too far then potentially it's just going to confuse things i guess if you ask every single person what they need to know and how they would like to learn it then you're never going to get a conclusion so i think it's a case of getting to the right audience now if you've got um if your audience is mainly in the uk then potentially you can speak to everybody directly in person face to face whereas if you've got audiences more geographically dispersed then potentially that's where emailing out questionnaires or using a, a survey tool actually starts to be quite useful but i think that breadth is is important too mm. there's, there's no way you should just go and speak to you know two or three stakeholders because they could have a very very different idea of what's actually going on on the ground to what is actually going in on the ground but again it it fits in very much with what we talked about in the strategy piece as well doesn't it which is you've got a general understanding of what what the right level is whether it's a large number of people need to speak to or a smaller number of people again based upon experience really yeah yeah you do you do get like a gut instinct don't you you fully you know you you sort of it rapidly becomes apparent as you start talking to people that a picture starts to form, doesn't it? And you can work out then that leads to other follow-on conversations that you need to have with people. I think once you've started to realise who the right people are to talk to, you know, what what you get then is you're able to cut through the noise because there is a lot of noise, isn't there, in these conversations. There's people, There's people with very you know, singular polarised opinions which may not be reflective of the organisation as a whole and so on and so forth. So here's a question I was just thinking of just now. So again, if somebody's coming to this quite new, what would be our our tips then for somebody who can't really bring that that level of experience to bear? Would it be to speak to more people or less? What what do you think would be the better thing for somebody like that to do? Well, I think Paul's Paul's point of actually pre-preparing all of your questions, doing as much research as you can. So whilst you don't want to go in with a preconceived idea, 
you also don't want to go in and start putting crazy ideas in people's heads that you can you know recreate the wheel when in fact actually you're not going to get a chance to do that so get as much information as you can and then i think you need to look at each of the various teams departments or uh, functional areas that are going to be affected and you need to speak to a cross section of people in each of those areas and as to how you split those areas whether it's functional or, or geographic or a combination of both but i think you do need to get that um that breadth of of, of a good breadth and a representative selection of people yeah definitely and uh, and i mean i think so for for people just starting out on this that do the groundwork but also i think it's not something that w- you you could realistically expect somebody who's never done it before to just throw them in at the deep end and expect them to swim it's i think it takes a degree of common sense but also it's something that you have to you, you know you have to build up experience and 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 so it's not something that necessarily somebody can just teach you and then you take that away and go and do do it yourself so i think there's groundwork but also i think you know it, it's like it's something that you know for people that are more junior they probably could do with shadowing the more senior people for a period of time to see and start sort sort of you know feed off those conversations and then you know at the end of a conversation what you could say is so you you have like a mop-up session after after you've had a stakeholder meeting and then see if you've both come to the same conclusions at that meeting and see if you know both of you the the senior experienced person and the more junior person have both sort of seen what's what's reading between the lines and come up with the same ideas. So what are the types of questions then that people should be asking? What what information are we trying to get? What's the budget? Perfect. Yeah, yeah. That's a great starter. How much money have we got to burn through? Indeed. <laughs> when we're creating this training package. Well, you laugh, uh, but that's, I mean, that's it's, it's, massively it's very, important. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Have you ever really asked that question, though? Yes, I do, actually. It's usually one of the first things I ask, you know, what kind of budget are we talking about? That along with, can I have a look at the plan? Yeah, definitely the plan. I don't think I've ever spoken about budget on on training needs analysis before. Yeah, no, I think I think and I'm somewhere halfway in between because I thought of. I think I've said often, you know, what are your aspirations? And, you know, are we thinking like uh, gold star or tin pot level training here? But never actually outright ask them about what their budget is. Well, it's something I, it's something I would always consider because uh, I often put a section in towards the end of, of constraints. So what are the constraints we're up against? And it could be, you know, geographical split. It could be we don't have any of our own training rooms available or, you know, the budget is such and such. Yeah, because I think whenever I've done them in the past, I've always been lumped into a project, you know, like NHS 24, for example, or any of the local authority count, you know, projects, you're kind of put in there to do it and the budget's fixed already. But I have come across asking for money when, when it answer to those questions about locations and, you know, do we need to rent somewhere? But that seems that was a long time ago. So the original question then was what, sort of things should should we be asking what information do we need so the obvious ones to me are how many people mm. where are they based and that's you know the who what are As, their roles yeah exactly what 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 is their job now obviously literacy yeah that's a good mm-hmm. one that's a good one. i was just about to say that <laughs> because 
you know, uh, and and are people going to have to start using some sort of technology for the first time? It, and that's sometimes the case, you know. So that's important to know as well, because I, I think so many organisations make huge incorrect assumptions about the, the levels of literacy of their employees. It's frightening, actually, how little actually companies know about how about what their own employees are capable of doing with 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 um, technology or yeah. comfortable of doing, should I say. And actually, it can go both ways, can't it? Because there can be an assumption that maybe if, mm. if the workforce is slightly older, there's an assumption that, oh, they won't be able to do any of these things. But, that's, <laughs> but then you're putting an immediate negative on something that might not really be fair because people, you know, some people might be scared of technology, but you know, particularly in, in the age of the smartphone and smart TVs and everything else, they might be able to do more than, than people give them the credit for. So, so yeah, those kind of assumptions, particularly by senior managers, can, can be dangerous in both ways, either over, over stating the, the problem or understating it. The other thing, of course, is, is, is the what. What do people need to know? And, and the counterpoint of that is what do they currently know um, and what is the difference? So where where is the gap? And I guess going to something that Paul said earlier on as well, what things would it be nice for them to know? But actually, those are the things that maybe could be in a, a separate module or a it's, it's not mandatory. So they can, they can be visited in their own time or whatever the final decision is. Yeah, that sort of gets back to that. What was it? The 80-20 rule, wasn't it? I was going to say we, that, yeah. That, that we often fall back to, you know, that mm. those... Uh, 20% of critical processes that people use, what is it, 80% of the time? Or have I got it the wrong way around? No, I don't <laughs> I don't think I have. I think it is, it is that, isn't it? I always get confused, yeah. yeah. Yeah, or it's that mythical happy path, isn't it? So what is the expected outcome yeah. of the process and what are the critical exceptions that we also need to include? And I guess the other the other main question is is how do you want to deliver this training or how should we deliver this training? What do you do currently? Is there a way we can make it better? Uh, and I guess that's where a lot of the constraints come into play because actually, you know, we've got a very geographically dispersed audience. We need to use some kind of technology because we're not going to bring in, you know, 3,000 people into a, into a couple of training rooms. So we do need to use some kind of technology, whether it be e-learning or, or electronically distributed classrooms, whatever it may be. So just going back to the how... Have any of you used the 70-20-10 approach in your TNAs? Have you considered that at all? I'm wondering... Yeah, it's put it something that's becoming more interesting, I think. Mm, and I think because of the way um, learning is changing, <clears throat> I sort of wonder whether it's something we should be thinking about more. Again, it comes down to the constraints, doesn't it, really? Whether it's it's usually budget that says, well, we've got 700 say for you know, an EARP, an Oracle implementation, you've got 700 transactions, but the reality is you've only got budget to document 200 of them. So exactly what Paul said earlier, you document the top 20% because they're the ones that are used 80% of the time or they're the ones that are particularly difficult or um, you know, a large number of people need to do. So I think we probably need to, we probably actually do that more than more than we realize but thinking about you know particularly some of the things that we've been talking about offline should we be making more use of social sort of social learning and people's offline learning and so on i think it's, it's something that we want to be getting into isn't it i think that's that's something we're going to have to do it's, it's in with that 70 20 10 thing isn't it 
very yeah. much so. And, and, yeah, and, and I agree. And, and also, so one of the things that we're doing on the project that I'm working on is that um, somebody from the training team is now, we've, we've sort of been really vocal to get them a seat at the table, but somebody from our training team now is actually contributing and attending all of the um, the user uh, experience sessions. So they're, help, they're helping, they're having sight of what the user experience journey will look like, but also they're helping to influence actually the design of the system in some ways. So they're being like preemptive, hopefully, that's the plan anyway. So I think that's that's also a step in the in that direction as well, because obviously that means then that, that in terms of that 80-20 rule, that gives us some leeway because, you know, some of the processes, we may not need to train them if we can help build them in such a way that they're, they become more intuitive, as it were. So we can buy back some of that time so that we can concentrate on some of the other stuff that's, that's awkward to learn, you know, is a bit of a bit of an icky process or a, a very sporadic process that people tend to do once every quarter for example and then forget you know so we can concentrate on that so that's what we're trying to do. that's a different different way of doing it but we, we, it's something that we're trying anyway well the other thing of that is the um is is whatever the strategic objectives are so that gives you a focus as to what you need to prioritize and concentrate on as well yeah, because as uh, I mean, because as we all know, it doesn't matter how the technology evolves. There's always going to be a need for training, isn't there? So, irrespective of what the general consensus is, we know that no matter how intuitive a system gets, there's always at some point there's going to be a need for expertise in around training and learning, whether it be retrospective to train you or get get you some learning after you start using the process in anger or is it you know shaping the design or produce training up front before you even start using the system or doing a new way of working okay so kind of last question what does a good learning needs assessment look like what should it contain what are the key outcomes main thing for me is a matrix of courses mapped to roles is it roles or is it named individuals at this stage? I've done roles, depending because where I've been involved in it, it's been quite masses of people, so it's difficult to name people, but I've put it down to roles. Yeah, I, th I think it's dependent on the size and scale of, of whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, isn't it? I mean, if we're talking individual people or dozens of people, perhaps tens of people, you know that that then that could be down to an individual level, but if you're talking about hundreds or thousands, then it, you know it's roles is a good place, I think a, a good lowest common denominator. I have seen, I'm not a fan of it, but I have seen examples of where the TNA is literally that matrix, and that's all that somebody's done. So that's basically roles and what they need to know, what they need to yeah. understand. But you've already said, haven't you, Clive, in terms of things like your constraints, your assumptions. They have to be in there because otherwise you put your risks because otherwise you're putting yourself at risk mm. of those things not being considered and then suddenly coming back to bite you. It's it's funny, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt, but the definition of a training needs analysis is it's difficult. You know, I had a situation at Centrica where I did a training needs analysis, a proper one, and the client totally um, didn't think it was a training needs analysis at all. They thought it was literally a spreadsheet of people and courses and that's mm. it nothing no topping and tailing no peripheries or anything but just that 
the other thing is is delivery methodologies just how you're actually going to make the training happen i think that's the other key one of the other key um outputs yeah another thing is what does success look like so you know all this is all well and good you know we've got a whole a matrix if you like a spreadsheet full of learning interventions or training interventions for different types of roles or people but how do we know what success looks like you know that's another thing that i think should should be in there not just a nice to have along with um, a plan that aligns to the overall project plan of course as well so you know who you're going to train you know what you're going to train them in you know you're going to know how you're going to do it and you're going to say when it all needs to be done as well and along with that an overall budget planning for development as well and that's one of the key things you're going to need to get signed off another really crucial thing we've mentioned um, I think in every podcast we've done so far is is the evaluation criteria as well as to how we're going to measure how successful the training is not just at the end but from the very minute you start delivering training because it's important initially that you take feedback and you redo the courses that are currently being taught just to make sure that you uh, people are learning the right things that the training is effective that the trainers are effective or whatever method of delivery you're using is actually working I'm not sure whether we're actually missing a trick. Maybe that's too strong. But I think there's a there's an, an additional opportunity to grow our offer at some point if we have the ambition to do that into that space more. Because as we all know, most of the work that we do is based on one or more deployments. And then what do we do? As somebody's once said, we all do a massive sort of high five on the program and off we go. And then the program disbands and goes elsewhere and starts all over again. But there's still a piece of work then. So after after go live like you say how do you the ongoing success are are people utilizing the systems as as a client would would expect them to is that was the training successful you know so what happens go live plus three months six months 12 months yeah yeah a post implementation audit thing yeah well that would be great wouldn't it if we had if we got that opportunity which obviously as consultants we don't usually get yeah, and I think um, it's one of the things that the LPI, for example, are continually trying to talk to us about because that's something that they're keen on and they see that as an opportunity and want us to get involved. But I have to say that, you know, in my experience, it's something that we never really have done for various reasons, generally because we're we're aligned to a particular programme. Once that programme has been deployed and there's the early life warranty periods gone, the programme gets disbanded and off we go. Well, that concludes this episode on Learning Needs Analysis. In our next podcast, we're going to be talking about training material development. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for the next one.